Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us this morning, or maybe you're watching this on a podcast or on demand later. No matter where you are, who you are, um, when you're watching, you're most welcome. Welcome to this new uh, summer series where we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things. As we were preparing for the summer, we took time reflecting on these questions. What do we need to be encouraged over personally over the summer, but also as a local church? Where could we share the good news of Jesus every single week and at the same time encourage all of us to begin to gather with people again, provide fresh vision around the need and the power of hospitality? And then it simply came to us. Jesus's meals with people tie in all these invitations and all these commands in one place. Have you ever noticed Jesus was quite the foodie? He was always eating with people, and it's over all those very different meals with all sorts of different people. He broke all sorts of barriers. He shattered expectations. He shows us what it's like to love a neighbor, and in those moments, at the same time, he actually reveals his true identity, and he also invites people into what he's calling them to. So welcome to this very, very important summer series. Now, if you haven't crossed the line of faith, that is, you're seeking, you're skeptical, you're unsure, maybe you're from another, another formal faith, or you're just spiritual, if you join us for one Sunday or all the Sundays, you're going to very quickly see who Jesus is, know what he's about, and actually what he's offering you. There's no better way, by the way, to check out the Christian faith than hanging out with Jesus as he talks to people over food. Now, lots of us watching this, we have crossed the line of faith, and why is this good for us? Well, we're going to be encouraged week in and week out as we hear the gospel again. We still need to hear the gospel, but more, Jesus' ongoing call to be with other people, those who are not like us, don't think like us, those we probably disagree with, the power of hospitality to be with those that are different will become so clear once again. Now today, as we begin this summer series, we're starting with a really spicy meal, a moment that within the Jewish context never, 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 never should have happened. But to understand this meal and the power of it and the scandal of it and the implications, you can't start at breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or even a good coffee. We actually need to start somewhere else. We need to start at a house with a really sick person in Jesus. Only after we hear and see Jesus' work with a person who's quite broken, then does the meal make sense. Both Luke and Mark record this event, so I'm going to start with the Luke one, then get to the Mark. Luke 5.17. One day Jesus was teaching, okay? And the Pharisees and teachers of the law, that's the pastors and theologians, were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. This, heal the sick. Okay, let me pause. There is a real ominous presence in the room. Imagine this. Every single critic or person who's concerned about Jesus is now in the room with him. This, in our culture, would be like every single blogger and social media influencer that disagrees with a person, can't stand the person, or has got questions about the person, is sitting there, iPhones out, literally live blogging or filming the whole thing. So Jesus is teaching in a very dangerous public environment. This is like cancel culture genuinely 2,000 years ago. But there's more. There's not just teaching going on. It says that the power of God, the power of the Lord, was with Jesus or on Jesus to heal the sick. Now, the word power is where we get our English word dynamite from. And the power of the Lord is resting on Jesus to heal the sick. Now, I'm just going to pause here. This matters. We teach this around Sanctus all the time. 
Jesus, though he's God, chose to function wholly as a human being under the leading of the Father and under the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus worked with the authority and power given to him by the Father and the Holy Spirit. He never once used his own divinity to do ministry from. He never emptied himself. He never de-evolved. Jesus remains the same. His character remains the same. His essence remains the same. He just chooses not to access his godness so he could show us what a normal Christian life looks like. It's what we call convergence around here. Now, in this moment, as Jesus is teaching and healing, the story gets closer to home. Now we'll go to Mark's account out of the same passage. Mark 2.1, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard he had come home. So many gathered and there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. I want you to imagine, it's the middle of the summer, and you're walking in your neighborhood or driving in a neighborhood and outside one house or one apartment building, hundreds and hundreds of people are milling around out windows and doors. The garages are full. Wouldn't you stop and see what's going on? Of course you would. This is what's happening here. The crowd comes to hear Jesus' teaching and they're all wondering, what is he going to say? What is he going to do next? And suddenly, at the back of the crowd on the fringe, a commotion begins. Some guys, as we're about to see, are carrying something or someone. I imagine they're trying like for an hour to get through, but there's so many other people desperate to hear just one word from Jesus or get healed by Jesus. They don't give anyone an inch. So this group of four goes around the back, goes onto another house and tries getting into the house that Jesus is teaching in. Here's how Mark records it. Some men came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four of them. Now, paralytic means paralyzed, unable to walk. Let me just stop and ask you this question. Have you ever had to be, uh, have you ever had to been carried before? Because you just couldn't do something. You never know the power of and, and the love expressed of someone carrying you until you really need it. I, I have two examples in my life. When I was really young, I'm an only child. I grew up in Ecuador. So one year at summer break, we were at the beach and I just sort of lost track of time and I was playing. And suddenly I got so badly sunburned, I couldn't move. And every time I moved a limb, I started screaming in pain. My dad ran. When he picked me up, I remember just screaming because the sunburn was so bad. And my dad carried me from the water into a cool room. I still have a vivid memory of this. And they put cream on me and began to take care of me. If I had been alone, I would have been in trouble. A much more dangerous moment happened years later. I was speaking about a youth retreat just actually north of where we all are in Durham here. And it was middle of February and I was driving back home. And as I was coming back, I hit black ice. And I went right into oncoming traffic in my car. I got hit at 60 or 80 kilometers per hour. My car began to disintegrate around me, three 360s. And my car ended up in the ditch in a swamp. When I came to, I was about 80 pounds heavier than I am today. When I came to, I was, I remember I was laying horizontal because the chair literally had broken. Uh, the steering wheel was bent in half because I went into it with all my weight. And the crazy thing is I had a huge theological textbook that if it had come forward would have probably decapitated me, which I think is sort of funny that I would have died by a theological textbook, especially a Baptist one. Inside joke, but it makes sense. It went backwards and smashed out uh, the window. I still have it in my library today. And I remember out of breath, the pain started setting in. It's like 25 below. The car is totally wrecked. I'm totally wrecked. And I just remember this vivid memory of this woman in a fur coat running down, screaming, don't move, don't move, don't move. And I said, I'm not moving. I can't move. I remember trying to give her my cell phone 
and there was no battery in it because it had been destroyed. And then some firemen came and they brought it the jaws of life and they carried me out of that environment. Being carried means so much when you really need it. I want that image to sort of be at the forefront of your mind today because it's going to speak to all of us no matter where we are on the journey. Okay, back to that same verse. Some men came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four of them. Now, many of you probably won't know this. In the Old Testament, if you were lame, you were immediately presumed to be spiritually unpure before God because the lame, the blind, and the cripple had been declared uneligible for participating in Israel's religious history. Why? Because the presumption was either you had sinned or your parents had sinned. And so your physical disability was a sign of God's judgment on your family or you. So it wasn't bad enough that the guy couldn't walk or couldn't have work the way he'd want to or live an everyday normal life as he wanted to. Because of his condition, he was viewed as on the outs with God. Can you imagine his inner thoughts at 3 a.m.? Like, I'm sure he hated being carried even though he needed it. Every time someone would walk by, it would probably be bad enough they moved away or wouldn't look him in the eyes because they presumed he had done something wrong or his parents had done something wrong. I'm sure maybe at this point there was more, no more tears, though. Maybe they had left a long time ago. I'm sure, I imagine him arguing with his friends that day, don't take me, I'm too tired, I don't want to be carried again. But the real deep reason, I'm sure he didn't want to go. His friends wanted to go. I don't know if he wanted to go. Maybe this is imagination. He just didn't want to get his hopes up again. One more humiliation just might kill everything that's left inside of him. So dust in his eyes, he looks up, one of his four friends smiling, and, and here they go, off to Jesus. Well, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and dug through it and lowered the mat the, the paralyzed man was laying on in front of Jesus. So the roof, by the way, is typical in the region, flat, made from mud and thatch. These guys are so motivated, so caring about their friend, so determined, they break the law. They destroy personal property. They literally, I think one person wrote, unroofed a roof. So inside, can you imagine Jesus is teaching and there's religious leaders and all the people and there's dust and then dry mud and then hay and, and branches and thatch begins to fall in. I'm sure the owner of the house is screaming, what are you doing to my house? What are you doing to my roof? No one could move inside of there because it's so packed and so the branches are falling down. And then in the chaos of the moment, Jesus just looks up. And of course, he'd been waiting for this. He knew this was coming. So the man is brought down. And in this moment, his eyes would have met his creator's eyes. The whole crowd, I'm sure, is wondering, what is Jesus going to do? So Jesus looks at him. I'm sure Jesus remembers his conception. Jesus smiles, mischief, I imagine, in his eyes. The Father has already given him the yes, by the way, for this healing. So it says, when Jesus saw the four's faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. It says that Jesus saw the faith of the four, not the man on the mat. But why? Well, faith always precedes healing all through the book of Mark. But we got to be careful. In church circles, a lot of people really mess this up and it hurts people in the end. What does it mean to have faith in this sense? It doesn't mean faith in faith. It doesn't mean if you, mm, i got to just have so much faith and then Jesus is going to obey and do the crazy thing. Faith means informed trust. They just said, I know Jesus has this ability. Jesus says, you're right, I do. So Jesus looks at the man eye to eye. And he says with gentle authority, son, your sins are forgiven. 
I imagine the guy was disappointed. Another religious Instagram moment. Another Christian bumper sticker with a verse that makes me feel good for, I don't know, three seconds, and then I'm still lame and still on the outs with God. He wanted to be healed. He wanted to walk. He wanted to work. He wanted to do something he dreamed about, fantasized about his whole life. But this now this roaming teacher, this sage, this sort of prophet says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't know his sins are forgiven by the way they were. I'm sure as hope is literally oozing out of this guy, almost like the last part of his dignity in life is dying, there's a disruption, a different one. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? <laughs> He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Oh, oh, their stress and anger and shock isn't seen yet. It's not even visible in their body language. It's deep in their minds. It says that they're thinking to themselves. And so this is like they're debating, they're discussing, they're questioning, they're mulling around in their head. And the question is, well, who the heaven does Jesus think he is? I mean, only God can forgive sins. And the Old Testament makes it clear, like, God alone is the one who reads the hearts of people. And God's the one who has the authority to forgive sins. Nobody else. And now this guy comes and says he can do both. If Jesus is not God, this is blasphemy. Either he's God or he's bad, he's mad, but there's no other option. They saw the divine implicit claim. And Jesus is going, yeah, exactly. What is amazing <laughs> is Jesus' words and deeds are about to prove he is who he claims. And notice, Jesus never disputes or never disagrees with the idea that only God can forgive sins. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Under the power of the Holy Spirit, using that spiritual gift, words of knowledge, Jesus exposes what they're really thinking. And before they can respond or debate, Jesus says, which is easier? To say to this paralytic guy, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Again, the question hangs over the room. You know, like cigarette smoke, it just won't go away, it just sits there? That's what this is. See, there's no way to really know if someone's sins are forgiven. Just because some stranger says your sins, and sins are forgiven, how do you know? How do you prove it? I love when one person simply wrote, by the use of a counter question, Jesus challenges their false assumptions that he has acted irresponsibly as a dispenser of cheap, or you could say fake grace. He knows, like we all know, though dangerous, that anyone from a nut job to a rational person can utter the very words, your sins are forgiven. But how do you know if it's true? So Jesus is about to act in a deed with a deed that's going to back up his words. And this is what he does next. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And by the way, just side note, remember that phrase, Son of Man? Remember that for next week's sermon. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. You say only God can forgive sins? Watch me, a human, do the same. And when I do it, you're going to know I'm fully human and I'm fully God. So Jesus' eyes would shift from the religious so-called experts to the one laying on the mat, the humiliated, the broken, the unloved, the one whose physical condition mirrors his soul, not able to do the things he's designed to do. There's light streaming in from the broken roof above. The four friends are looking down, hoping, praying, that what Jesus said is not myth or lie or joke. And suddenly, and suddenly, and suddenly, there's a movement 
in the man's limbs. And people, I guarantee you, gas. I wonder if someone swore in the background. His friends begin to cry. And in the front of all of them, he just gets up. He got up. He took his mat. He walked out in full view of them. This amazed everybody. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. This is like the ultimate movie moment, right? He gets up and he walks through the crowd. And people are just like, did that just happen? Now, as we're all trying to take time to digest this amazing encounter, Mark moves us very quickly again to another act of grace that again will be met with anger and hatred by those who supposedly love and represent God. And now we get to the meal. And it's at a meal the second clash takes place. See, Jesus loved to associate with a broad section of people over food. Normal people, outright, flagrant sinners, tax collectors, sex trade workers, farmers, fishermen, housewives, artists, the intellectual and religious elite, everybody. And I guarantee you, in a few minutes, you're going to see why the paralytic and this story connect. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. And he said, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, Jesus, this is like mind-blowing. Jesus calls a tax collector to be one of his followers and implies you can be my disciple and you can be a leader. I've shared this before. Maybe you haven't been with us, but let me just do a little background. Uh, tax collectors were Jewish middlemen between the Jewish population and the Roman occupational government. Now, tax, tax collectors in our day, they've got a bad rap. None of us love really giving up money. But this is way, 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 way more scandalous and bigger. They were hated because they had made a deal with the devil. They had sold their souls for money. They're working for an occupational force. We know, multiple historians talk about this, that not only are they working for the Romans, but they were known for lying, cheating, and overtaxing people, and no one could do anything about it. Any Jewish person that entered the custom service of the Romans was immediately viewed as an outcast from society, just like the, ready, cripple. Immediately, if you became a tax collector, you were disqualified in a Jewish sense as a judge or witness in any case. Your testimony, garbage. You were immediately excommunicated from the synagogue. You were cut out of religious life of the Jews completely. In our vernacular, you can't go to church anymore. No connect group for you. No celebrate big for you. No, you're cut off. You are an immediate disgrace to your immediate family and your extended family. And I got to bring this home. Remember, Levi, as an example, is working for a military occupational army. To put this sort of maybe in a different way, this would be like a French or Polish citizen working for the Nazis during World War II and getting rich while doing it. They're, here's the word. This guy's a collaborator. And yet this hated man who is on the outs with God and every other Jew, Jesus walks up and says, follow me. <laughs> and Jesus invites him, which is unbelievable. And then later that day, Jesus ends up having dinner with Levi and his friends. Well, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples were there for many had followed Jesus. Now, can you imagine Levi's confusion and joy? I mean, this amazing person, this leader, this healer, the most 
popular, respected religious guy in the Jewish community is having dinner with me, a political, religious, traitor, collaborator? But not just with me, other sinners? Now, okay, let's stop for a second. When you hear the word sinner, what do you think? Well, there's two definitions for the Jews, and it matters for us. The first version is this. Sinner means those who break God's law. Don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't steal, don't lie, don't dishonor your mom and dad, don't worship any other God except the Jewish God, and we'd say found through Jesus. Every human being on earth is a sinner. Our culture might hate to say it, but it's true. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we break God's law, we assault God himself because the law comes from him. That's what a sinner is. But also in this time period, there was also 613 invented religious laws that didn't come from the Bible. And what they did is they prevented you from actually breaking God's law. Think about a red line and a bunch of fences. And so these Pharisees set up all these human invented laws to prevent you from even getting to the real law. So when someone was called a sinner 2,000 years ago, it could mean a violation of the 613 invented laws and or God's law or a mix. It's a mix here. So when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, hey, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, there's even more punch and more scandal than this. Some of you know about this, some of you don't. The religious leaders are upset because this is what they regularly taught. Your purity and your standing before God is connected to who you associate with. In other words, in Jewish culture, if you ate with someone, you were legitimizing someone. It's like, you know, when you tweet something out and sometimes you say, you know, just because I retweet it, I don't necessarily mean it or believe in what I'm retweeting. I'm just pointing it out. This is like, no, if you eat with a person, you're saying they're legit. So if you ate or took time or lived with people that were not following God's standards or the other religious standards or a mix, you were publicly saying you're just fine with that. And immediately you in front of God was tainted. If you ate with a sinner, you become a sinner. Did you catch that? It's like, have, let me put it like this. Uh, during the pandemic, do you remember COVID sort of everywhere? And you're like, oh my goodness, if I go in a house and sit with someone, they've got COVID, then I'm going to get tainted. I'll get COVID and then we're all content. That's how they viewed eating with a sinner. Jesus sits down and says, I got no problem. I got no problem eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now, let me just stop because this matters. Jesus never, never, never excuses their sin if it's from the Bible. Just because he eats with someone is not legitimizing what they do. Jesus kills, still calls out sin. Murder's wrong. Adultery's wrong. There is a sexual ethic in the scriptures. He, he supports that. So, he understands the difference between eating with someone and justifying what they do. He still calls sin, sin. But he understands you're not tainted by sitting with a sinner. And the ceremonial stuff, the invented stuff, he doesn't even care about that. So on hearing this, Jesus said to the religious leaders, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, right? It's the sick. I've not, call, I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. Now, another hold on moment. Is, is Jesus saying here that he only has come for sinners and not good religious people? Uh, oh, oh, no, no, no. There's sarcasm here. And see, here's the scandal. Here's what's going to start being unveiled all summer. Jesus understands something that most of us even miss. Jesus knows that Levi, the collaborator, 
who is involved in all sorts of sin. And his friends, oh, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, in God's eyes, are all the same. Because actually he's confronting, at the same time, two expressions of flagrant sin. Moralism and hedonism. Uh, Religious people are moralists. And if you talk to any religious person on earth who's devout, whether they're Jewish or Muslim or maybe they're a Sikh or a Hindu or a nominal Christian, they will say things like this. I get relationship or I get to heaven or I connect with the divine by what I do. By religious acts and spirituality, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm religious, I'm righteous. I don't need help. I don't need a savior. I'm my own savior because what I do connects me or proves myself to God. That's moralism. Hedonism says, I will live my life through pleasure. Sex, money, power, my rights, my feelings, my story. One's about denial. The other's about non-denial. But here's the wild thing. Both systems find their root in us and not in a savior that God has provided, Jesus. See, the key to the story is this. The tax collector and the Pharisee are the same. They both need Jesus' work to be changed and saved just like the cripple needed the same thing. Now, here's the wild, beautiful thing. Years later, Levi, who most of you might not know his other name, some of you might, his name is Matthew, and he changes the world. He writes this little book that's sort of known, you might have read it, it's called The Gospel of Matthew. And what's so beautiful and countercultural is that Matthew is the gospel written to Jews to actually prove to the Jewish community that Jesus is the fulfillment of their faith. Is this not mind-blowing? The political, uh, religious, traitor, collaborator meets the fulfillment of the Jewish faith and writes the gospel to bring Jews into relationship with Jesus. Then church history tells us that that Matthew preached in Egypt, then in Ethiopia. He strengthened and helped found the church in the African uh, context, both in the north and in the middle. And then tradition tells us he was martyred. He was speared to death for preaching about Jesus. So as we begin the summer together, what do we learn from a walking cripple, four real friends, a political, collaborator, a, a political collaborator, a religious outcast, a, a greedy person, you could say. Well, it's really wild that Jesus, the same Jesus that healed, ate, confronted, and cared, is right here right now as I'm speaking to you. And here's the question for you. Are you the cripple? And are you the tax collector? Are you the sinner? Are you the Pharisee? See, some of you in your soul, the deepest part of you are crying out, Jesus, do you still do things like that? I love how uh, Augustine, years ago, that famous church father, talked about this story, the first part. He said, you have been a paralytic inwardly. You do not take charge. Your bed took charge of you. Jesus comes to you that have not crossed the line of faith. And you could be deeply religious or spiritual or agnostic or atheist or something in the middle. And he says, of course I eat with sinners. And I st- of course I heal cripples. And I give eternal life to anyone who wants it. Are you living a life that God has not called you to live? Know this, that the God of the universe knows all that you are, where you've been, knows every wicked action you've done. He knows how you've used your mind, your body, your money, how you've treated parents and friends and associates and families and enemies and how you've treated him. Not only does God know your sin, 
God also knows your good attempts and also God knows your rejection and pain. He knows the marginalized side of the conversation, anger, alone, frustrated, questioning, fear, rejection. See, whether you're rich or you got nothing, whether you're deeply religious, spiritual, or something in between or nothing at all, he says to all of you, you the great moralist, <laughs> you the great hedonist, and everything in the shades of the middle, you come and eat with me and find life. Oh, but to find life, there's a little word that I need to say again. I'm going to go back to the Luke account of this. Jesus answered the pastors of his day. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I have not come to call righteous, but sinners, and call sinners to, oh, here's the word, repentance. What is repentance? Well, number one, it's admitting sin is sin. It's a confessional declaration of what God says is wrong. And by the way, God says adultery is wrong, and coveting is wrong, and lying is wrong, and but he also says any attempt to connect to God religiously is just as wrong. And repentance means you admit what a sin is, but then it's something beyond just admitting. You turn, you leave, you accept your need for Jesus. You actually do a 180 reversal. With remorse and contrition and regret, you say, I have tried saving myself, or I haven't tried saving, my, saving myself. I am Levi, I, I, I am the tax collector, or I'm the cripple guy, or... Turn. You, you have to turn to Jesus and say, actually, you're the only one who has the power to save me, to heal me, to change me. And the invitation all summer long is for you to see Jesus who he is, what he claims, what he offers, to repent of sin and turn and embrace him because actually saving is an external thing and it's a gift. What do you do with Jesus? Lots of you who are listening to me like myself, we are already followers of Jesus. And as we begin the summer, the question is, well, even if you know this story, maybe you've grown up in your church your whole life and this is like a Sunday school story for you. Why is the Holy Spirit bringing this up to you now? Well, I think it's simple. We must keep carrying people to Jesus. Jesus says it was the faith of the four that carried the man that was key. So, same with us. Are your prayer lives full of people that are lost? Are your lives full of people who are lost? Who do you have meals with? I mean, I know it's been wild during COVID, but we get to have meals with people again and coffees again. Are you sitting with people and having meals with people? Are you practicing hospitality to people who are not followers of Jesus? Remember, association does not mean equal justification, but you cannot give out eternal life if you are not with people. When's the last time you intentionally thought about inviting someone, physically or now even easier, virtually, to Alpha, to your home, to a church service? Spending time with people, eating with them, share your story. When did you become a Christian? At three or last week? There's power in your story. Talk about faith. Send someone a Bible app. Buy them a Bible. All these acts can be used by God. Look at the lives of these four men. They went the extra mile, caring, praying, tearing through the roof. And don't miss the point. I, I love when someone wrote this. The engineer loves the hole in the roof. <laughs> and the caring people in the story love the friends. And the event manager loves the healing. 
But don't get lost in the story. Jesus is the one in the middle of the story. And just like Jesus was sitting in that broken home and then later sitting at the table of a political collaborator, and oh, by the way, side note, I feel compelled to say this right now, I want you to think about the person you hate the most, the person you want nothing to do with, the person that politically drives you crazy. That's Levi, right? And notice Jesus sits with him and just is there. And then suddenly... You see, in all these cases, Jesus is saying, I'm willing, I'm able, and I'd love to bring things like, son, your sins are forgiven. Levi, come follow me and become a leader in my community. I love restoring people physically. Just remember, bring people to Jesus. Oh, oh listen, I can't change anybody. Um, the staff can't, elders can't, no church program can, amazing volunteers can't. We're only connection points. We're only facilitators of, of bringing people to the risen one. He's the one who can save and heal and give hope and dignity and eternal life. But remember, the work is worth it. A cripple danced and a tax collector wrote scripture, helped birth the church in Africa, and we're still reading his material in the GTA over 2,000 years later. What would happen if you took the time I just want to challenge you. I want to call you. I want to commission you. I want to invite you. Hey, Sanctus Church, or I know some of you are from other communities. You're listening. If you belong to another community, you can say that name. Take the summer to intentionally practice hospitality. Your friends aren't a project. Be with them. Eat with them. Have barbecues with them. And prepare yourself because the moment will come. And I also encourage you, out of this post-pandemic moment. Bring people back into the guaranteed places of encounter. Remember, remember, gathered worship, where two or three gather in Jesus' name, he's there. People radically get saved when they walk into worship services. Jesus is present. When God's word is preached, Jesus is present. When we take communion, they may not take it, but Jesus is in the room. Listen, he's here. Intentionally, virtually and physically, bring them into these places of encounter. This is going to be a great summer series. Every week the gospel is going to be given. I'm just saying, you can bring someone any week and they're going to hear the good news of Jesus. But also, this is going to challenge us, encourage us, and slowly push us out of our fearful moment to reconnect, not just in Christian community, man, we need that, but with those who are not in Christian community yet and to begin to see the good news spread again. So Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit, Bring to mind the people that you want us to interact with. Thanks, Jesus, that you walk into a paralytic life, someone who supposedly was on the outs with you, and he's made right. Thanks that you walk into Levi's lives, a, a, like, a, a life like Levi's, and you bring life. Thanks that also you even desire Pharisees and religious people and moral people to also find eternal life. I pray for people watching, listening to this right now who don't know you, would you just open their eyes to your beauty, Jesus, your kindness? Would they cross the line of faith? And for the rest of us, would you begin to provide sovereign opportunities to just be hospitable, to be present, and to be given the amazing opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus. This is what we pray as we begin our summer. We all said, amen. Thanks for being with us. Uh, next week, we're going to have late night lattes uh, in a whole different way. We'll see you next week.